0: what do you know? We're back. Just a few minutes ago, we watched the conclusion of the January 6th hearings, at which point Liz Cheney pointed out that some witness who had not yet been heard from was contacted by Donald Trump in an obvious episode of witness tampering, to which Mr. Millen is chuckling a bit because when has Donald Trump not been witness tampering and obstructing justice at every turn? They announced that we're going to refer this to the Department of Justice for possible action. Well, yeah, that'd be good. We're waiting to hear from Merrick Garland. They said that on next week's hearing, they're going to do a basically, I guess, a minute-by-minute minute, uh, dis- description of what happened on January 6th and tie together yet more loose ends. Although I must say, an awful lot of this is retread. I mean, if you read Bob Woodward's book, which you made reference to on last week's program, you'll find... Um, a fair number of things that were turning up from Pat Cipollone and others in today's hearing. But the point is, you have to keep talking about this stuff to really burn it into the public mind. That is now clearly apparent to us. And I do hope that they will uh, take up like where CNN left off. They had a minute-by-minute minute summary, which they posted a few days ago. And, you know, just looking at it, there are some pretty dramatic things that have come up that are, weren't completely known Uh, back in the day, back when this happened. Like the recent revelation that before 10 a.m. on January 6th, White House Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato told Trump that authorities at the ellipse where he was going to hold a rally were encountering attendees with weapons, including pistols, rifles, bear spray, and spears. And that before noon, Trump told his staff to take the effing mags away, referring to the metal detectors, because the rally-goers were, quote, not here to hurt me, unquote. At noon, Trump began his speech on the Ellipse, which lasted, I guess, about an hour. About 1 p.m., pro-Trump rioters, including members of the Proud Boys, overran the first set of barriers outside the Capitol and started rushing the building. White House staffers, including Meadows, were alerted by the U.S. Secret Service that police lines were collapsing. And at 1.10, when Trump ended his speech, he called for supporters to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue and march to the Capitol, telling the crowd he'll be marching with them. When last week, Cassidy Hutchinson made reference to Trump trying to grab the wheel and perhaps, you know, attack his own Secret Service agent, the Secret Service says, well, we, we dispute that, that account. But when it was suggested, well, they'd come in here and testify under oath, we haven't really heard from them since. By the way, we all remember that footage of uh, the windows being smashed at, I guess, at 2.39 p.m., the first, some of the first Capitol windows were smashed by Dominic Pizzola. He is allegedly a Proud Boys member. He's been charged with seditious conspiracy, and he's pled not guilty. But that same exact time, Oath Keepers, far-right extremist group, were weaving through the crowds of rioters in military-style formation. We saw this back on January 6th. The news kept re-showing these people moving in line, military fashion. Anyway, I think it would do the country good to take another hard look at all of this again from the top with some more added details. It is curious that we're 50 years past the Watergate break-in, an episode that led to a presidential resignation because it became clear that, well, he had obstructed justice. But I must say, looking at the degree of obstruction of justice that took place under Nixon and um, was attempted under Trump, was with no small amount of success. And you have to wonder why it was they didn't impeach Trump. Oh, wait, they did impeach Trump twice. Of course, one was for trying to uh, cut a deal with the Ukrainians over arms shipments, which they they desperately wanted, in exchange for political dirt. And the other was for January 6th. The whole Russiagate thing was just bypassed. And I think uh, that's all I'm going to say about that today. I do want to take a look back at Dick Nixon, and particularly the fact that um, there's a documentary out. I guess there's a a dramatization out with Julia Roberts playing Martha Mitchell and uh, Sean Penn playing John Mitchell. But I I, I saw the documentary on on Martha, who, if you were alive back then, remember as quite a fixture in Washington. She was directly talking to Helen Thomas in the press. She was mouthing off about what she thought was going on. In the conventional wisdom of Watergate, John Mitchell ordered a lot of those uh, illegal activities, and I'm sure he did order or did give the okay to lots of illegal activities in the 72 campaign. It's worth noting that so successful was the effort to um, manipulate the electorate in 1972 that Richard Nixon carried every state in the union except Massachusetts and the District of Columbia This whole Southern strategy, which has proved so effective for the Republicans, dates back to the 1960s. But boy, they got it dialed in in the 70s and the 80s. McGovern in 72 carried one state in the District of Columbia. I believe in 84, Walter Mondale carried one state in the District of Columbia. Republicans are very good at painting the Democrats as some sort of left-wing fringe. They've been doing it for quite a while. So all their hard work over the decades did, I think, result in people ready to go to Washington and just start murdering on January 6th, as we learned in the uh, hearings today. Well, we've known this for a while. It was just good to see the hearings showing it to us yet again. Anyway, Martha Mitchell, just to just to wrap up on her, was quite a uh, quite a cheerleader for Richard Nixon and the Republicans. She was very conservative. She certainly uh, backed her husband to the hilt but felt that he was being used to possibly be set up as the fall guy by Nixon. That's pretty clear, <laughs> pretty clear that was a, a reasonable concern. Nixon kept claiming he knew nothing about any of this illegal activity going on. It was all of his age doing bad things. And sort of pointed the finger at Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman and was going to make John Dean the fall guy, but Dean managed to slip the punch. Not only that, but twice get himself on Radio Parallax. Of course, as we talked about several weeks in this program, there's a lot more to Watergate than just, you know, renegade Republicans. The CIA has an involvement in it, and I'm looking right now at the excellent book. A relative of Mr. McMillan's wrote me some time back and asked about what would be the best resource on Watergate would be, and I suggested Secret Agenda by Jim Haugen. Its uh, subtitle is Watergate, Deep Throat, and the CIA. I think this is a book I need to reread. In fact, if we wanted to get really aggressive here... Haugen, who also wrote the excellent book Spooks, is somebody we may want to contact to come on and talk about Jefferson Morley's book. We'll give that some serious thought. I think he would be an excellent, excellent guest. Anyway, Martha Mitchell, uh, a little bit of a maniac in some respects, but, but oftentimes right, it would turn out. Not always, but oftentimes. Mr. Millen points out more than a stopped clock. Now, there are very few shows that will jump from political science into bacteriology. But when you know it, you're tuned into one of them. Here's an item that got my attention. Under the headline, Giant Bacteria That Are Visible to the Naked Eye Upend Microbiology. Article from New Scientist by Carissa Wong. The world's largest known bacterium has been found in the tropical mangroves of Guadalupe in the Caribbean. It is about a centimeter long. With a structural complexity not seen before in such single-celled life forms. Most bacteria are about 2 microns in length, or about 0.0002 centimeters. Their size is limited by the fact that the energy-carrying molecules they use to power themselves, known as ATP, are produced by enzymes embedded in the cell membrane. This means that bacteria need to have a suitable surface area-to-volume ratio in order to function. That said said Carissa Wong. We already knew that bacteria could grow larger with one species, Thio margarita nelsonii, reaching up to 750 micrometers. This, however, is still within expected theoretical size limits. The new bacteria, which they've named Thio margarita magnifica, and no, we don't know how they came up with that, Mr. Milling suspects after numerous margaritas, and I have to give that some credibility, has a volume about 50 times that of T. nelsonii, which breaks the limits. Anyway, they discovered this bacteria and thought it might be a fungus at first, but took a look at it and saw these extended networks of membranes, which were studded with ATP-producing enzymes, um, which allowed them to meet their energy needs despite the huge size. They uh, labeled the membranes of, of the, um, the bacteria with a dye, and discover that the cells store their DNA in their protein-making ribosomes inside sacs made from cell membranes. That is a feature normally seen only in more complex cells like those in us. Despite these unusual features, Thio margarita magnifica has many genetic similarities with members of the Thio margarita groups of bacteria and fits nicely within the current tree of life. The article quotes Gerard Musgier, the University of Amsterdam, as saying its discovery will still have big implications. The impact of the study is enormous. All microbiology textbooks mention that bacteria are small and simple. However, the results described in this paper will completely change our view of these aspects. And let us segue into another article from New Scientist, also about microbes for the most part, a piece by Adam Vaughn titled, Engineering the Oceans. Asked the question about controversial schemes to chemically alter the seas as possibly being our best hope to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Yes, we've talked about this on the show before, and, you know, uh, chemically altering the ocean does seem like there might be some drawbacks. But to quote from the piece, using the oceans as a solution to climate change is hardly a new idea. Last year, China installed as much offshore wind farm capacity as the rest of the world did in the last five years. But Earth's great blue expanses could play a far more active role. To avoid global warming, breaching that 1.5 degree Celsius target that was agreed upon in Paris in 2015, the IPCC calculated that all forms of CO2 removal would need to suck 584 billion tons of the stuff out of the atmosphere between 2020 and 2100, which works out to about 7 billion tons every year. For now, planting trees is the cheapest method There's only so much land for trees. The most we can squeeze in is about a trillion more, they say, along with the three trillion we already have, at least by one estimate. Terrestrial options for removing CO2 often also compete with the needs to feed our almost eight billion people. The approach considered by the IPCC to have the greatest potential, which is planting crops that remove CO2 as they grow, then burning them for energy and capturing the carbon's emissions would require vast tracts of land and huge amounts of water could have been used for food. In that context, looking to the seas makes sense. The oceans cover 70% of the earth. Here's a stat I did not realize. The oceans already contain 50 times as much carbon as the atmosphere. That I did not know. I imagine you're surprised too. Article notes that according to some estimates, ocean-based technologies might (laughs) might remove as much as 100 billion tons of CO2 every year. It notes that one obvious method would be the equivalent of reforestation on land. That would be restoring natural carbon sinks such as kelp forests, seagrass, and mangroves. But it notes their potential is probably limited, hence the interest in engineering approaches. I want to stop there and say, what do you mean it's probably limited? If you look at satellite photos of California, and we have at least the ocean off of California, you will note that there's been a catastrophic decline in our kelp beds. One theory is that there was a, um, a die-off of numerous starfish for reasons that remain unclear, and in the wake of not having the starfish, there was an explosion of sea urchin populations, and the sea urchins like to eat kelp. Apparently some areas of the coast that used to be kelp forest are now basically a forest of sea urchins. I think there's probably a lot we could do to uh, create carbon sinks in kelp forests. Nevertheless, moving ahead into more radical ideas, the article quotes David King, chemist at the University of Cambridge and a former chief scientific advisor to the UK government. This especially got my interest because I had the privilege of interviewing Sir David King when I was serving a gig over at Capital Public Radio. He was an extremely optimistic person and a convincing speaker. Listen to David King for a while, and you think things may not be so bad. And God help us, maybe they're not. Maybe things can be mitigated with some radical ideas. And Sir David King has a radical idea. I have to to pause for this one for a moment. But here's the idea. Instead of taking iron pellets and affixing them to rice husks and sinking them so that the iron causes a bloom of algae in the ocean, this has been tried with some mixed results, We could instead try using synthetic whale poop. Now, wouldn't you know it, it turns out when whales do defecate near the ocean surface, it releases huge amounts of nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen that stimulate phytoplankton growth. Preliminary studies show this could work really, really well. Now, the article is a little bit vague on how it is you go about creating synthetic whale feces. uh, But frankly, I'm going to leave that to the experts. I have some degree of confidence that if a zero-gravity toilet can be invented, so we may be able to produce synthetic whale feces. (laughs) As a public service announcement, we would say, please don't try this at home. But there's some other ideas out there as well. Scientists in Australia are planning to develop some artificial upwelling using pipes to bring nutrient-rich water from the ocean depths to the surface to again create phytoplankton blooms. We have a sneaky suspicion that the law of unintended consequences is going to raise its ugly head and mess some of this up, but you know maybe we'll get lucky this time. And of course, when it comes to replacing the seagrass and the kelp beds, uh, you know, and on, on our coastal ecosystems, mangrove uh, forests, etc., a, a lot of good is going to come of that. Just apart from what it can do to act as a carbon sink, so full speed ahead on that. All right, in about the 10 minutes or so we have left, I think I'm going to stick to science topics. I have three things I pulled out of new scientists last year that have been sitting around. I think it's time to, to talk about them. Starting with a column by James Wong, described as a botanist and science writer with a particular interest in food, who wrote a column about foods becoming taboo, noting there's an increasing number of people who think seedless fruits are bad for you. Now, We were almost wholly unaware of of this notion, except for the fact that we've railed in this program in the past about how seedless watermelon are tasteless and have a strange texture to them. I never thought that meant they were bad for you, per se. But James Wong notes that if you type the term seedless fruit into an internet search engine, you'll get suggested terms like bad, bad for you, good or bad, GMO, and even Bible. you're curious about the last one, there appears to be a relatively large section of the internet that views seedless fruits to be against the teachings of the Bible, and in particular, anti-abortion beliefs. Meaning to some, seedless fruits aren't just unhealthy, but they're unethical. I have to say, when it comes to the watermelon, I I, I may may be inclined to agree. But said James Wong, seedless fruits are the result of biological processes called parthenocarpy, the development of a fruit without prior fertilization, while it's true that this can be the result of human actions, it also happens in nature all of the time, or could be a combination. For example, in the wild, bananas are filled with hard, bearing like seeds that make them incredibly fiddly to eat, to the point of being essentially inedible. Archaeologic evidence suggests that naturally occurring hybrids between two banana species produced infertile offspring got noticed by Paleolithic peoples in Southeast Asia and Melanesia for its tastier and much better quality fruit. By splitting off the baby plants that bananas naturally produce around their base and replanting them, it was thought they were able to spread clones of this new wonder plant all the way from Papua New Guinea to India to the Middle East, to the eastern coast of Africa, and all several thousand years ago. Similar events have occurred in a wide range of fruits with a pretty ancient heritage. This includes the Thompson seedless grape, which dominate world trade, That variety is frequently called as a classic example of modern genetic manipulation, when in reality, it is a modern U.S. trade name for a Turkish cultivar that dates back to at least the Ottoman Empire. And evidently, the development of genetically sterile hybrids continues today with, you know, things like the aforementioned watermelon. But genetic crossing isn't necessarily produce seedless fruit. In some cases, perfectly fertile plants will produce seedless fruit in the absence of pollination. Some citrus farmers will net their trees in fine mesh to prevent bees from pollinating the flowers, which results in a seedless fruit. But there's an even simpler way. Some varieties of fruit are naturally self-sterile and will only produce fruit with viable seeds if crossed with a genetically different variety. Many pineapples, for example, are made seedless by simply growing one variety in a field and keeping away the partners they need to produce viable seeds. Anyway, the punchline out of all this is the nutritional difference between seeded and seedless fruits is minimal. And since seedless fruits are more popular, including, unfortunately, I hate to say it, the watermelon, they get us to eat more fruit. And that's a good thing. In another article from the magazine by Amelia Tate, they took a look at living by the numbers, saying that people are told to aim for eight hours of sleep, 10,000 steps, eight glasses of water a day, fixed number of calories. Are these targets useful? Well, take the 10,000 steps thing. In the mid-1960s, a small plastic pocket watch-like device went on sale in Japan. It was called the Monpoke. It was the world's first commercial pedometer. Roughly translated, Monpoke means 10,000 steps meter. Why 10,000? Well, it likely originated as a marketing tool, says I Min Lee, an epidemiologist at Harvard. Not only is 10,000 an easy number to remember. The character of 10,000 in kanji, a script used in Japanese, looks a little bit like a person walking. Now, Herman Ponser, an evolutionary anthropologist at Duke University, studied the Hadza hunter-gatherers in Tanzania. He did this as a window into how humans lived thousands of years ago and the levels of activity our bodies are built for. In a recent study, he measured more than 2,000 days of Hazda activity and found that the men aged 18 to 75, walked an average of 18,000 steps a day, while women in the same age range walked about 1,100 steps a day. The Hazda do tend to avoid many of the chronic illnesses of Western societies that we associate with inactivity, so it would seem that walking a lot is good for you. And it surely is, but there's nothing magic about 10,000 steps. If your steps are brisk and if your steps are uphill, you don't need to get to 10,000, something which has been imprinted on me of late as I've been hiking in the East Bay Hills. There's a trail that everybody takes to get up to the top of the ridge, and I've decided to go straight up the side of the hillsides, and man, has that been exercise. I tried to count the number of steps I took uh, last week, and I got somewhere near 1,000 to get up to the trail, and I got to tell you that I'm sure my 1,000 was the equivalent of your ten. Up on the top of the ridge, people seeing me come up that way have asked, is it easier to go down that way? And I say, no, it's not. I also want to note that I often do it without taking water with me, just, just to tempt fate. The piece notes that whether you're walking 10,000 steps or 4,400, you need to keep hydrated. But do you need to gulp eight glasses of water every 24 hours? Well, it turns out that figure dates back to 1945, when the U.S. Food and Nutrition Board of the National Research Council published dietary guidelines that recommended consuming one milliliter of liquid for every calorie of food, which adds up to about 2,000 liters of water a day for those on a 2,000 calorie diet. But guess what? You get 30 to 35% of your moisture from food. That's the magazine. The two-liter recommendation it wasn't just misunderstood over time. It was simplified into eight glasses of around 250 liters, or about eight ounces a day, eight times eight ounces a day, It is believed that the U.S. bottled water companies have capitalized on this misconception. The article explains that we have very elaborate mechanisms in our body to tell us when we should drink. It's called thirst, and it turns out if you rely upon thirst to tell you when you need to drink water, you'll be very well served. To which I do want to add, if you're driving your car in Death Valley and you're at risk of it breaking down, be sure to have extra water with you. And as far as that 2,000 calorie a day thing goes, well, it turns out that almost everybody, when they estimate how many calories they take in, which is a guideline for what the recommendations are, almost everybody cheats. Or let's just say unreliably reports. And to talk about this properly, we're going to need probably 10 minutes and we're down to about one. So time to abandon ship. Since we've got about one minute left, uh, I think what I'm going to do is go back to those 5,000 jokes. Summarized, I think we'll do about five or six of these. Starting with, have you heard about the paranoid with low self-esteem? He thought nobody important was trying to get him. Here's a statement that Mr. McMillan denies. My own action figure would come with action sold separately. How about this one? I am zero for 145 in pulling random books from people's bookcases and having it lead to a secret passageway. How about, I was so poor as a kid, I didn't build sandcastles. I built sand mobile homes. And finally, here's one that's not for everybody, but the statement is, my girlfriend told me she was going to go commando tonight. I thought that sounded great, until she lobbed in a smoke grenade and then released all my hostages. I'm a joker, I'm a smoker, I'm a midnight. I'm a grinner I'm a lover And I'm a sinner This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who I'm sure is especially looking forward to editing today's program. In between, of course, taking the time to research the manufacture of artificial whale feces, which I'm not sure is going to work out as a side hustle, but maybe. I am Douglas Everett. As much as on occasion I might want to deny it. you're listening to Radio Parallax, we're going to probably have a little more standard show next week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then. I love it, love love it, love love it, love all the time. baby, I should show you a good time. Cause I'm a picker, I'm a grinner, I'm a lover, and I'm a sinner. I play my music in the sun.